Well, family, good evening. It's, uh, it's great, as always, to be with you <clears throat> and a joy to open God's Word. But I'll admit that there's a time when we come to, to open God's Word that it can be a little bit nerve-wracking too. Not because we have to stand up here and, and stand and, sit and talk in front of all of you, but because there are parts of Scripture that require just a whole lot of us. I was joking with an elder the other day that we were a bit worried about going through 1 Timothy because it's really challenging at parts. There is stuff here that, that Paul instructs Timothy to do that, that we would rather not have applied to our lives. Things that, are, that our culture rages against, things that our nature fights against. And yet these things are in God's word. They are things that, that bind our conscience. Hearing God's word is a dangerous business because it, it does bind us. It does require that we, we sit up and listen and conform our lives to the text and not to what we would prefer. Not imposing our ideas, but, but allowing our beliefs to be molded by what the text says. And that, dear brothers and sisters, is a difficult business. It's a daily and it's a constant battle. And you can even see that, that the Paul primes us for that fight here. Look in your journals to, to chapter 1, verse 18. Paul is entrusting Timothy, charging him here that he, and, and underline this, may fight the battle well. So, so ministry, the, the Christian life, Paul says, it's like a battlefield. It's, it's not a cruise ship, as the saying goes, but a battleship. So note down, if you can, that, that that's the sense in which we start this portion of the letter, with, with a call to arms, with a sense that this is important. And we know that that is connected because of that little word in verse 1, then. Just a quick thought. If you, if you have your journals uh, and you see those little connecting words, always highlight them or draw a box around them because it shows you the, how you should be reading the next part. So in light of the command to, to fight the battle well, this is what we are to do. What's coming are instructions on, on how to fight the battle well, how to hold on to faith and good conscience, but specifically how we are to do that as the church, how we are to behave in corporate worship. So when we look to verse 1 and read, I urge then, first of all, and that's like as in of, of first importance, we should be ready now to receive our marching orders. This is what we are to do. This is the battle plans, the way in which the kingdom of light is going to take the fight to the kingdom of darkness. And what does he say? Pray. Now, you can draw a box around the, the petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving because Paul isn't really giving us categories to work through here, although that might be helpful to structure your own personal prayers. Rather, what he is doing is he's heaping up different words for the same thing upon each other to give us this sense of importance. It's like when I come to visit you and you all tell me, go on, get out of here, pack your bags, sling your hook. It's, it's not emphasizing each individual activity. But it's giving an urgency to the general theme. So, so, to, so too, this is an urging to pray all kinds of prayers so that his ministry is going to be marked by prayer. 
the primary activity that Paul gives to the people of God in fighting the battle is prayer. The key strategy of the Great Commission is the Great Intercession. Now, that might strike you as a little strange, because in our culture, shouldn't we be on the front foot? Shouldn't we be going out and engaging the people? Well, maybe later, but of first importance here, Paul says, is engaging God. Because if you read through the Scriptures, it's so obvious that that God fights for his people. He, he is the one that brings victory, not us, not our strategies, but the Lord. So a first importance in, in all our strategic moves is aligning ourselves with him. I wonder when you were going through the vacancy process, if you can think back that long, and you were thinking what you wanted out of a minister, did you think about someone who would be really active in visiting someone who could produce insightful sermons, someone who would revolutionize the discipleship in the church or lead a charge in evangelizing Bangor? Did you consider how many hours he should spend at the hospital, how many hours spent counseling people, how many hours spent at meetings? And I, that, that's all good stuff. That's all part of the minister's responsibility. But I hope that you also considered prayer. And I hope that now when you think of the work of Christoph, you, you don't discount the hours locked away in prayer for your souls as if the real work of ministry only happens when he leaves his house. Because what we see here is that Paul says to Timothy, what is of first importance in his role in a minister is prayer. And it's of first importance for us as well as, as you evangelize, as you serve, as you seek to witness to Christ. Prayer is powerful. But oftentimes our, our culture can sort of devalue that, can't it? Because we're about productivity, about output, about results. And yet the consistent witness of the Scripture is that God desires from His servants holiness above all else. Write that down if you can. Draw a big box around it. Faithfulness is the mark of a godly man, not competency. And that's something that extends to us all. If we are on a battleship, then, then it's all hands on deck. No one can just sit in the pews and not be conscripted into this fight. So let me ask you then, when was the last time that you won a battle in prayer? When was the last time that you fought on your knees and saw victory come through it? I heard Paul Washer ask that question, and, and it just cut me to my core. Because for a while, I, I'll confess, I'd let my prayer life slip into a, a tick box exercise, making sure that I covered the things that needed said so that I could justify to myself and, and to my discipleship group that indeed I had been praying. But wrestling in prayer, fighting on my knees, I probably wouldn't describe what I'd fallen into. More often, I'd been trying to figure out solutions to my own problems with a, a bit of a nod to the Lord to ask Him to bless my endeavors. Would that describe your prayer life? Are you box ticking? Or are you weeping before the Lord 
over your family who are lost? Are you setting aside time in your day for prayer, not as a thing to squeeze in, but as something as important as eating? This is what Paul urges us here. Think of it like he is pleading with you to pray, to make it of first importance in all that you do. Here at Hamilton Road, we want to make faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And, and here's the thing. I want to be a faithful follower. I want to be a good soldier in the Lord's army. But I know that left on my own, left on my own devices, I simply won't be. Because I, I am prone to wander. I am prone to give into my own desires rather than to live as God wants me to. So I, I know that I need supernatural help to become the faithful follower that I want to be. I know that I need to be pleading with God to sanctify me, to mold me in his image, to, to move me from one degree of glory to the next, to find more and more satisfaction in him and not in the things of this world. I need to pray. I need to ask God to move in me. If we want to grow, we need to ask God to move, to plead with him to work, to be like the persistent widow or, or like Jacob and just refuse to let go without his blessing. Or maybe it's not your own spiritual growth. Maybe your burden for our young people or our mission family or the, the people of this city, wherever it is that God's people go to war, it has to be fueled by prayer. There's a famous quote by a missionary writing home to his church, and he says this. Not much is happening here. Could it be that you aren't praying? We can put on the, the greatest events, provide the, the best help to the people, do, do everything perfectly. And yet, if we aren't acting like prayer is of first importance, and it's like getting an F1 car ready for the big race with all its engineering, but forgetting to put the fuel in. Do you want to see young people here? Well, pray about it. Do you want to see missionaries sent out from this church? Pray about it. Do you want to see the preaching improve? I hope you do, and I hope that you're constantly pleading for your preachers. Prayer has to be at the forefront of all that we do because it aligns us with the Lord who fights for us. So let me urge you, family, like Paul urges Timothy here, pray. See how crucial it is. Make it of first importance. That's, that's the driving point of this verse. That's the what we are to do. But if you notice, we'll also see something of the how we are to do it. So stay with me in verse 1. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So make sure if you're taking notes that you, you highlight that this is an evangelistic call. That the God who rules all the world wants his people to pray for all the world. That prayer isn't required here. It's not limited to the people of God, but it extends to all people. And when Paul says all, he means all. So you'll note in verse 2, we get this, this extra emphasis on kings and all those in authority. And it's not because they're just 
extra special. But rather we should read it like saying, pray for all people. Yes, all people, even kings, even those in authority. Because you see, at the time, the the ones who were responsible for the greatest persecution of the church were the kings and those in authority. Think about modern places like North Korea or Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, Iran, Yemen, Somalia. Places where it's either illegal to be a Christian or, or where our family face high levels of persecution for their faith at the hands of the government. Imagine you were living there and you heard Paul tell you, pray for all people. So what do you do? Maybe you go and you you pray for your neighbor, you, you, you pray for your friends, maybe local business owners. But then Paul taps you on the shoulder and points to the people over there who killed your parents, who burned your house down, who beat you in the street, who abused your family. And he says again, all people. And the pain and the anger in your heart rises up and you shout, not them, Lord. Don't you know what they've done? Don't you know that that they deserve punishment? Not them, Lord. I won't pray for them. Now, granted, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe you do pray for the IRA or for the UVF. Maybe on your prayer list, alongside the names of, of people who you know and love are members of ISIS. Maybe the thing that you grumble about isn't that we don't see enough young people here or that there isn't enough concern for the old people. Maybe you are actually complaining that we don't have enough former prisoners in our pews. But I'm willing to bet that there are certain people groups that that in our hearts we are just less passionate about seeing saved than others. Who are the kings and those in authority for you? About whom does your, cry, your heart cry out, not them, Lord? If you have your journals there, write down those groups now. Put their names in ink in front of you so that you cannot ignore them. Because we are told to pray for all people, even those that we hate, even those that persecute us. That's a difficult way to pray, isn't it? a way that we might not want to or the way that might seem almost hopeless at times? Can God really save that man who traffics young women and girls? Is the Islamic fundamentalist not surely beyond his reach? And anyway, would we even want them here if he did save them? That way of of thinking, it can be subconscious at times, but it shows that we don't appreciate the inordinate breadth of the gospel or understand that that we are the ones in need of that breadth. Because lots of us, there there are times when we think that that really we're okay, that we aren't really that sinful, that Jesus only had to do a, a little bit of work on us when he saved us. We don't put ourselves in that category of, of proper sinners. That's what we are. Stuart reminded us last week that, that Paul saw himself as the foremost of sinners. 
but that that understanding was what created in him such wonder at the outrageous mercy of God. Brothers and sisters, my salvation is a miracle. Your salvation is a miracle. It's the miracle of the dead being raised to life. That is what God did in us. He brought us back to life. Not self-help, not a reforming of our ways, but a resurrection of dry bones. That is the power of the gospel. And there's not a single spiritually dead person out there that the Lord cannot raise. No one person that has gone too far for him to miraculously call and heal and save. No group that he cannot unite us to as family. Not a sinner that he cannot bring us to love and cherish and see as part of our family, no matter what they look like or what they have done. The Great Commission says that the church is to go to all nations. And this great intercession says that the church is to pray for all people. It's big and it's bold and it's outrageous at times, but the fact that we are here in this place on this tiny rock in the middle of the ocean would have been totally outrageous to believe for first century Christians. And yet here we are, the fruit of outrageous prayers. This is the detail of the battle plans, how the kingdom of light is going to take on the kingdom of darkness. But you'll probably notice that the bulk of this section is not devoted to, to what we are to do or even how we are to do it. That's, that's stated quite succinctly here. Pray a lot and, and pray for everyone. What takes up more space is why we are to pray. So intuitively, we know that we, that, that we should pray. We can understand how we should pray, even if we might not like it. But Paul is focusing here upon the why we should pray, because that is what's going to move us from a, a dry, external, moral conformity to a way of fighting the battle well, to weeping over the lost because we so reflect God's heart. Look with me to verse 3. This is good. That's referring to praying for all people and pleases God our Savior. So think of it like a, a sweet-smelling sacrifice, something that God deems as, as, as fitting worship. Why? Because God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. To put it simply, we pray because it pleases God. So evangelistic prayer, it's part of our corporate worship. Every Sunday we pray in intercession for others because we see that God's heart is for the nations, that he is gathering people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to worship before his throne. Psalm 86, all the nations you have made will come and worship before you. Psalm 22, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. Isaiah 66, they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. The Lord is building his church. He's gathering his bride from all peoples. So not that, that each and every person will be saved regardless of what they believe. That, that's not what Paul means here. Christ knew who he died for. Hell is real and it's a real danger for those who don't trust in him. But rather what Paul is getting at is that, that all types of people or, or people from all kinds of groups will be included in the great congregation of the church triumphant. 
God's church is made up of people from all walks of life, all nations, not just the, the Jewish nation like some of the false teachers in Ephesus were saying. Instead, we know that the only boundary marker for the church is faith. The being adopted into God's family isn't dependent upon who we are or, or what we do, but just on God's saving purposes and goodness to us. We can see that God loves us regardless of our circumstances or background. He loves us because of who He is, not who we are. So this is, this is the inclusive message of Christianity, that the doors are open to all. Not just the people who, who look like us and live like us, but, but all who would come to worship the Lord. And so if we are being conformed to God's will, then, then we're going to be naturally drawn to pray for all people. Desiring that all people will come to know him, longing for people from all over the globe to repent and to look to Christ. But here's the thing, even if we don't feel that just yet, reflecting God's desires is a way for us to be molded into his image. So even if you don't feel hugely passionate yet, well, come to the prayer meeting on Wednesday nights because you want to be more like God. Pray for all people as, as part of your own discipleship. Align yourself with God's desires and they will become your own. And in that conforming, in that surrendering of your will to his, you will be worshiping God. You will be pleasing God, our Savior. What Paul sets up for us is that prayer is an act of worship. We should pray for all peoples out of a love for God and in worship of him. And see how quickly he moves to show us why we should worship. Verse 5, 4, and there's another connecting word again you can circle. There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Without Christ, man is under the wrath of God with no way out. And so God entered the fight. Jesus took on flesh so that a representative of man could stand in the dock, but he did so as God so that the price could be fully paid. On the, on the cross, Jesus paid our ransom that the price required to satisfy God's holy requirements for justice in our place. And by taking our place, he atoned for our sin. That's what the word ransom conveys to us, that, that, our, that our sin is paid for, that we are free, that we are free from the chains of sin and death, not because of our, who our parents were or what we have done, but because of what Christ did, because how Christ saved us. Instead of hell, we get glory. Instead of separation, we get relationship. Instead of wrath, we get love. Instead of being left out in the cold, we get brought in and sat down at the table. All because of what Christ did on the cross. In the gospel, we get God himself. We get united to the God of the universe, our creator, and not because of anything that we can boast in, not in our family line, not in our capacity, not in our good choices or what we have achieved. And also, praise the Lord, not dependent upon our measuring up or our perfect and unwavering obedience or, or proving ourselves in some way, but because of Christ. And 
This is why the gospel should move us to worship. Because just of how awesome it is. And why it should move us to pray for all people. Because the ransom that was so costly, we cannot possibly withhold it from those that have a right to it. Philip Ryken said that there is a prayer for all because there is an invitation for all and a ransom for all. No barriers, no boundaries. The gospel is open for all peoples. Praise the Lord that isn't closed to sinners like me and to like you. Praise the Lord that Christ paid our ransom, paid the price of our sin, took all the wrath of God upon himself so that we could come and have life with him. And praise the Lord that it is open for the terrorist, the prisoner, the drug dealer, so that all people might come and show off the glory of God. And it is that glory, that, that grace that we want our lives to be a response to. We want to honor God and follow him because of what he has done. We want to be conformed to his will because we see that it is good and perfect and holy. And so we pray. We pray for others to know that as well. We reflect the will of our Father in being sold out for the lost. Paul wants those people who, who watch on and, and see how we conduct ourselves in corporate worship to see something of the Father's will. An invitation for them from a God who stands with his arms wide open, ready to receive them if they would just trust in him. This is why Paul was appointed. It's what he says. To share the gospel, to see people from all nations and not just the Jews brought into the family of God. Is that what you want? Do you want to see all nations worshiping at the throne? All types of people here in this place from all different backgrounds, your brothers and sisters? Do you want to see this place full of people from every section of our society because they have all come to know, know the surpassing love of Christ? I pray that it is. And I pray that you are moved to pray. Moved to, to come to our prayer meetings. Moved to, to pray in your discipleship groups or, or in your families or, or in the pews after church so that the people of God would reflect God's will for all kinds of people to come and to know him. And that we would be molded and shaped into God's likeness as we respond to the glory of the gospel through this great intercession. And so I urge you, Hamilton Road, first of all, pray. Fight the battle well. Fight it on your knees. Fight it with bold and outrageous prayers. And fight it together. Fight it for the glory of God.